but it creates this false reality as though everybody believes that, right? When in fact, it's this socially kind of constructed and augmented world. Hello, and welcome to Between Two Codes, a podcast where law students talk to the experts at Georgetown Law about the intersection of law and technology. I'm your host for today's episode, Ian Carrico, and we're glad to have you join us. Between Two Codes is brought to you by the Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy at the Georgetown University Law Center. The Institute is training the next generation of lawyers and lawmakers with deep expertise in technology, law, and policy. You can find the many events that the Institute does at georgetowntech.org. Before we get started, we'd love for y'all to subscribe and rate us on your podcasting app of choice and follow us at Between Two Codes on Twitter and Instagram. We have a lot more great episodes coming down the line. You will not want to miss them. This week on Between Two Codes, we have Laura Donahue, a professor of law at Georgetown Law, director of Georgetown Center on National Security and Law, and director of the Center on Privacy and Technology. She has worked extensively on issues of national security, constitutional law, and emerging technologies. Today, she is here to talk to us about social media, misinformation, and constitutional law. And we're going to just dive right in. Professor Donahue, we talk a lot about the current climate found on social media, but when we think back to our founding fathers, there was immense partisan rancor throughout the press. What is the difference about this moment from then? Not just partisan rancor. They knew what was happening in everybody's home, right? Everybody knew what was going on back then. Like this is, this is the idea. So David Brin wrote this great book called The Transparent Society, where he says, you know, look, it used to be that we we knew everything happening in everybody's homes. Um, now that, you know, then we went through industrialization and you moved to cities and there's this anonymity. Now what's happening is we're going back to that pre-industrial society with the surveillance and kind of the information available about individuals. The only difference is it's disproportionate. So you have very, you can't see into government, um, but they can see into you, right? And what we're seeing in terms of Cambridge Analytica is you can't see into the companies, but they can see into you too. So it's actually that inequality in information that is causing a lot of the social troubles that we're seeing. And so it's a lack of transparency in things like what algorithms are being applied to what you see in your social media feed. Um, what is creating this reality around you? So in, in my work, I'm very concerned about that we live in an augmented reality. We just don't know it. We think it's reality, but in fact, many of our interactions are curated for us and we never actually have access to how that's decided. And it's done by this you know, black box that we call Twitter and Twitter decides. And because of that, what we see, what we read, what we think about uh, is actually being shaped by forces that we have no control over. So we're not selecting, okay, I'm going to read Mark Twain. He's been banned. Awesome. I'm going to read Mark Twain. It's somebody's telling you, uh, here's a book you need to read. Um, here's what you need to do. Uh, and that's a very different kind of a relationship to the ubiquity of information about individuals. So, so let's let's dive into that quickly. When you have these uh, algorithms that really tell you what you need to do, how is that being used right now to push specific narratives and specific disinformation campaigns to each person? So, the basic concept here is the like function, right? So, if you 
like something, uh, then algorithms pick this up and they say, oh, well, if you like that, then you'll like this other thing that has some sort of similarity or comes from an individual with a high eigenvector centrality who's in contact with some of the people that you have the highest relationship with online and you tend to like their stuff. Therefore, you're going to like this influencer, the super influencer, um, uh, you're going to like their stuff too. And so they start putting it higher up in your feed. And so you start reading it more. And Pete Singer, he's a terrific scholar. Uh, he's actually written a wonderful book called Like War, where he says, you know, the problem is that the emotions that travel most effectively online are uh, anger <laughs> and uh, hatred. Right. So and there have been studies done on this, that this is what travels the most. So people tend to repost an untruth. It turns out untruth is 70 times as likely to be posted as truth on Twitter. Um, and part of it is, you know, I think our human propensity to uh, extremity, right? You just kind of scandal and oh, my goodness, and being shocked by something. And that tends to fly online. And what that does is in the process, it annoys everybody online, right? So every time you see it, you get annoyed, right? And then that person passes it on with some emotional content and it masquerades as fact, but in fact, it's emotionally mediated news, which travels online. And so you end up with individuals increasingly alienated um, and upset uh, and uh, kind of angry about this. It also leads to a kind of extreme view. So, you know, the problem with, well, there's so many problems, but one problem with social media is it, it's an inherently false world, right? It's, we don't recognize this, but it's actually, it, there's a lot in it that leads to falsity, right? So if you think about it, it, it makes you believe that everybody thinks something when in fact, it's only the people that have been curated for you that believe that, you know, if you were to take a poll of everyone of all, you know, two point, how many is it? 2.7 billion Facebook users worldwide. Chances are you wouldn't find the same consistency as you do in your feed. Right? So if you, it, you know, but it creates this false reality as though everybody believes that, right? When in fact, it's this socially, kind of constructed and augmented world. Um, and it also, right, it's it's not just news, right? It's people seeking validation, right? So people tend to, you know, maybe present themselves not entirely accurately and maybe present information not entirely accurately in order that they get more likes and more people to respond to them. Um, and so, and if you have 40 characters to do this, it's not gonna be like a nuanced discussion. Right. It's going to be just kind of like this crude presentation, which ends up playing to everybody's cognitive biases. Right. So you have this social media world, which already is built in uh, to uh, to to kind of support and promote false uh, a false reality. Uh, that's that's that, that actually you you then enter into into that false world. And what that does is as views are articulated, it drives individuals to more and more extremes because you get the idea, something that you might have thought was an outlying idea before suddenly becomes a mainstream idea when more individuals with that outlying idea are in your feed and so on and so forth. And so what you end up with is this drive to extremes that occurs online. Uh, and it has to do a lot with the structure of the online environment. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the structure then. What, uh, what could possibly be done to the structures that lies currently to, to change how we, we see this perception, make it less so where, where hatred and disinformation and false news or false uh, information is being spread so easily? 
uh, well, so that's the $10,000 question, right? Like you can think about it like a continuum. Okay. So what if you have um, false information? Let's, let's talk about blatantly false information. Okay. Um, all Democrats are lizards, right? Was it, wasn't this one of the one that went up or uh, wearing masks uh, makes you infertile. Right. You know, um, you shouldn't wear a mask because then you won't be able to have babies someday. Um, you know, we've seen all of these kinds of messaging uh, going up around coronavirus. Right. Which, you know, it's just blatantly false information. Right. That's going up. Uh, we've seen I mean, so much false information online. Right. Where to where to where to start. Um, and you have a few choices. Right. As a social media company, one, you can do nothing. Right. You just leave it up there um, uh, Two, you can make a note of the number of people who ask you to take it down because it's false. Right. You can say, you know, so many people ask this to be taken down because of ver veracity. Uh, you can flag it by saying it actually is false. Right. Um, th this is problematic. Um, or you can um, uh, deplatform somebody and say you put so much false information up we have booted you off of our, our off of our platform, right? Or you can send it to some sort of adjudication, like an oversight board. So let's call it, I don't know, Facebook oversight board. Um, and let's have them this ostensibly impartial third party, which is actually people we've handpicked, but okay, let's have this impartial third party decide and we're not doing anything, we're just watching, right? And then at the far extreme, you have, uh, what about laws that come in and say, you can't put up anything false? Well, then you are immediately in First Amendment world. Right. And it would be one thing if if all of this false information, all of the you know mass make you infertile, Democrats are lizard people, et cetera, were to remain online and social media. But we see very quickly this affects people's behavior in the real world. You have people who are afraid of wearing masks. You have people who are... Uh, afraid of the opposition party or wh whatever political piece is involved here. Uh, the largest example, of course, being uh, what happened on January 6th of this year, uh, where you have people who believe that the uh, election was stolen come to protest that. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how these, uh, we have seen recently this become more and more elements of the real world and not just the, the virtual internet world? So one of the issues, at least from a First Amendment perspective with January 6th in mind, is, uh, you know, the Brandenburg standard. So we used to have a clear and present danger standard, right, which we got rid of uh, because it was a bad standard, right? And so in Brandenburg versus Ohio, you have a case that establishes in the mid 20th century um, saying, you know, no, look, there has to be the risk of imminent lawless violence. So if you have a mob assembled and you say, go attack the capital, right? And let's take this democracy back. That's not protected speech, right? If, if you're trying to incite imminent lawless violence, if you're just posting though publicly and you're expressing your opinion, we should take back this election, right? We should, uh, this, this election was stolen from us. We should try to take that election back. That's a general view that you're posting online as a general statement. Um, that's a little bit different. Now, what if your followers happen to be members of a group that is currently gathered uh, with weapons, right, um, down around the Capitol complex? You know, what, what if that's the group that's following? Well, they're not your only followers. In fact, they're not even a significant fraction of your followers, right? They're just some of your followers. Or that Some of your followers are, you know, have nothing to do with that group that's gathered. So you have to, you know, 
the law was not developed with something like social media in mind. Um, what happens if you put something up on social media and uh, you know three months later, somebody reads it and then engages in violence? Are you responsible for it? Well, at the time you posted it, it wasn't imminent, right? Are you responsible for everybody who happens to read something you write and then decides to take up arms? Well, so then what do you do about the situations where you have an environment that's created by constant rhetoric, espousing opinions that play into social divisions and social bifurcations and create two disparate groups and kind of play on those divisions that prime the pump, so to speak, for that engagement. And there, you know, we don't have supreme, you know, for that that's protected speech. If, if short of knowingly false statements, right, when we're, if we get out of the disinformation and into the incitement category, incitement to violence, there has to be imminent lawless violence for that to be uh, within the Brandenburg standard. Oh, and like, sorry, and likely to produce illegality. So it can't be just, you know, I think we should all attack Mars right now. Like it's, there's, there's no real threat there. I, I think we should attack Mars. Uh, and why not? So, so it seems we're in this gray new world area where uh, previous Brandenburg test uh, doesn't necessarily fulfill what we would imagine people do on social media for uh, imminent lawless action in some way, shape or form. Is there something that should be rethought about the First Amendment and the case law there? Or is this a area that we need to work with uh, more more private organizations and think about deplatforming as a better solution uh, in, a, in a corporate sense? Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, it's in libel law that we're seeing the most kind of treatment of and wrestling with uh, social media in many ways. So, um, you know, in the case of Alvarez, so Alvarez was a stolen valor case where uh, there was a legislation that basically said that it was illegal to hold yourself out as having received a military uh, honor uh, if you hadn't. And the Supreme Court basically said that that section was unconstitutional for First Amendment purposes. Now, there was a dissent in that case. So that's uh, Justice Alito joined by Scalia and Thomas, who said, well, look, if you say something that's knowingly false information, then that uh, shouldn't be constitutionally protected, right? If it's knowingly false. Now, the Supreme Court, both the majority and the dissent in that case, uh, they all subscribe to this idea that there is no such thing as a false statement of fact with regard to history or with regard to art or with regard to social sciences. That, you know, if you say 40 years ago, you know, president, you know, whoever, you know, did this, you can't be attacked for that. You can't make that kind of speech uh, reachable by the government, right? Because that's an interpretation and an understanding of history. But if you're talking about personal experience, you know, the dis the dissent in that case said, look, knowingly false speech. So the case this week, for instance, in Hawaii um, of this doula. So there's a, uh, you know, the creepy doula case in Hawaii where the doula uh, is, a, is a man who's taking compromising photos of women in labor and people went on... Um, Twitter uh, to call him uh, a creepy doula, basically, that he's, he's something's wrong uh, here. Uh, the, the question in that case is, 
how much latitude do you have on Twitter? Well, there was a case recently in California. It's in December 2019. The court decided in Unsworth versus uh, Elon Musk. Uh, this is the case where, do you remember the soccer players who, um, the, the children's soccer team who was in the cave in Thailand? Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the rescuers was a British caver who rescues people from caves. And apparently Elon Musk had offered the rescuers the opportunity um, to use a mini sub that he was going to build to go into the cave to rescue the children. And Unsworth, who was the British rescuer afterwards, got on CNN and said, you know, Elon Musk turned up with his mini sub after we already had eight of the children out, eight of the 12, you know, um, he was totally useless and then made some pretty disparaging remarks. So Elon Musk then started tweeting that this caver was um, the, the guy who works for the, the rescue of the children in the cave uh, was never there, that he's a pedophile. He married a 12 year old um, and starts making all these allegations, you know, against him. Uh, so the question is, is, are those protected statements, right, on Twitter or not? So how far do we go in protecting speech on a social media platform? And in that case, they said that's protected speech. It was heated rhetoric because the two of them had locked horns and they were kind of engaging in that kind of discussion. Now, in New York, there's another case uh, which had to do with, um, it was a pump and dump case. So there was a, a an investigative journalist who published an article in the Southern District of New York uh, for Harper's Magazine, I believe it was. And then he tweeted online uh, about an individual and accused him of illegality. So he had done this investigative journalism piece and then he tweeted afterwards about it. And in the Southern District of New York, they said, well, no, that's not protected speech. Because you're an investigative journalist, you had all of this background, you had this report already done, one could assume that you meant it in a way that it was personal knowledge um, and that you would have known whether that was true or false based on your report, therefore people would have believed it, therefore that comes within the libel. The, the problem is, is that these cases are all over the map. There's not a body of law emerging because so many of them are fact dependent. But what you're seeing is a real questioning of how to think about and handle false information in, in, a, in an environment which is all about emotional content. You know, so how do you, how do you, you know, litigate what's true or false, or how do you, how do you prohibit what's true and false? You know, this is something that the court has always wanted to stay out of, because it's so hard to know, and, the, and really, you don't want to put your legal system in the middle. And so that's why Section 230 of the Communications Act kind of kicks that question off, because then it doesn't involve the government in this position of actually interfering in the truthiness, so to speak, that's an awful word, um, but in the truthfulness of any statement that's put online. So we started this conversation talking about uh, how, you know, in the 1776, how the government and private uh, individuals could kind of see each other and, and, and know what was going on. You know, we have this, this new world, but is, is all of the disinformation, the, uh, saying libelous things and publicizing it. Uh, surely this is, isn't entirely new. This is, these are, are issues that we've seen again and again throughout our history, whether it be uh, with, with Russia or, uh, you know, early on with uh, various publications that I'm sure uh, our founding fathers did against each other. What, what makes today so much different? Yeah, so, so that's actually, a, that's a really good question. And there, you know, there's a lot of disagreement about this. Like, is this actually new or not? Like, should we be concerned about this or not? And, you know, if you think about it, so um, Octavian, so he put 
images on coins and little little slogans about um, uh, Antony that made her out to be like this alcoholic womanizer, right? And he, uh, he she that he was uh, corrupted by his lust for Cleopatra, that he was her puppet. He wins, right? He becomes the first Roman emperor. He becomes Augustus, right? He wins on misinformation, right? On on uh, on blatantly false information. Um, you know, that's not new, right? Technology as an enabler, that's not new either. I think about the printing press, what was possible before and after, you know, 50 monks sitting in an abbey is not going to be nearly as effective as Luther, right, going to a printing press and printing out his theses, right, and distributing that throughout Europe. You can overthrow a church, right, by doing that. You can, you can completely change society, right? That's a very different kind of a world, right? Or the great, the great moon hoax. This was great. So, you know, John Locke, the famous philosopher, his like one of his descendants uh, actually came up with this moon hoax. He couldn't get a job. So he's British. He couldn't get a job. He ended up working in New York for one of the New York uh, penny papers, right? Um, and he, his name is uh, Richard Adams Locke. So, so Richard Adams Locke decides he's going to publish the story how Sir John Herschel, who's this like super famous scientist, uh, has discovered life on the moon. And he actually publishes pictures from Herschel's tel you know, telescope showing aliens on the moon. Incredibly successful. Everybody in New York believes it, including the New York Times. They write it's highly probable, right? Because he's citing Herschel that everybody knows. Sir John Herschel's this famous scientist at the time, right? Everybody falls for it. You know, it's also very typical of wartime. Right. We've seen so much disinformation at wartime. So the Nazi propaganda, right, all of these campaigns, the USSR, they had this dis disinformancia, right, They're the disinformancia um, campaign where they engaged in these measures. So they had Operation Infection, where they tried to convince people that the AIDS epidemic was actually a biological weapons program in the United States. Um, they, uh, they used a disinformation campaign to heighten Racial animosity, this might sound familiar. They actually played into the civil rights movement and tried to exacerbate that, right, for individuals. They, um, they designed these active measure campaigns and their goal um, was to look for existing divisions in society and truthful news and weave those together in a way that forged documents and false information came together with truth in order to have this effect, right? So the idea was to, you know, basically get their target audience, change their beliefs or views or minds and steadily become more and more isolated from others in society, right? So to bifurcate society, like that, that was the goal, right? Like that's, that's what they were trying to do. Um, and so like, when we look at this, like this isn't new, what, what is new is it's faster, right? It's easier to accomplish. Uh, it's, it's much faster. It can be applied at scale, right? So you can do it not just to one, one person, but across an entire society, right? You can, you can take Facebook, you can micro-target. So this is what Cambridge Analytica, what we learned from that is that you can actually identify different psychological profiles and use those profiles to target individuals in different ways to respond to information. So individuals who are like most fearful about their children's security, you play into with stories about children, right? And individuals uh, who are neurotic, you play into with things that play to the, neuro the neuroticism, right? Of those individuals. Um, you can also hide and mask that attribute um, and it, it, it appears to be much more effective, right, than it, than it hasn't been before in terms of being able to do this. So, and you don't have to leave home, right? You can do this from a globe away. And that seems to be new. That seems to be a new thing. 
So what does this all mean then for, uh, from a, a national security perspective, one, one of your focuses of if you can have this disinformation campaign can be run by either, you know, a lab in Russia or a, a 16 year old in Texas, uh, how should the government respond if these are, are active issues without stomping upon the First Amendment and those concerns at the same time? Well, so the national security issues that are presented here are really kind of interesting and unique in some ways, right? So, you know, the first point is that these companies are privately owned, right? They're not actually um, controlled by the government, right? And, and that's something different, right? Traditionally, national security is a government attacks another government or a non-state actor attacks a government, right? The government's not in this picture, right? This is privately owned companies that are being... Um, sometimes just straight out contracts with them, right? Picking up metadata, using that information and advertising, right? On these networks. So the government isn't engaged in that. And what that means is, you know, at one level, so their customer base might not even be American. So Facebook has, you know, 2.7 billion users, only 190 million of those are in the United States. That's less than 7%. You know, think about that. Less than 7% of Facebook users. And most of them, by the way, like would be probably over age 50. One would imagine, right? Like, I mean, that's not a that's that's not a stat. That's an assumption, right? But you know, it's an old. You know, our children say that's what my parents do, right? That's what my grandparents do. You know, kids are not on Facebook. Kids are doing Instagram and Snapchat and you know TikTok and all these other ones. But TikTok's a great example. Only ten percent of TikTok users are American, right? So, like, so what that means is these companies their interests don't align with US national security. Their interests align with their customer base and with their bottom line. And what what works? Sensation, sensationalist information, right? So at some level, there's very little motivation. You know, not only is the government not involved, but there's very little motivation for them to play ball. Why, why would they? You know, if they lose 7% of their market, but they still have 93% of it globally, like really how much is that going to hurt Facebook? And what about companies that aren't even US owned, right? That these kind of international companies. So um, they're also incredibly powerful. So Facebook, their net worth is $527 billion, right? Again, that's kind of a moment to pause. That, that, that means like if we were to look at every country in the world, what their GDP is, uh, Facebook would be number 26 in the world in terms of size, right? So that's in front of countries like Argentina, Iran, you know, um, the UAE, Ireland, Hong Kong, Singapore, all of them would be ranked lower than Facebook <laughs> based on their D their GDP or, or Facebook's net worth, right? Like, that's powerful. Like, when you can deplatform the president of the United States, like, that is power, right? This is this is a huge issue, right? So, you know, my colleague, uh, Professor Julie Cohen, has written and thought um, and worked on this concept of uh, sovereignty, like whether this is a new kind of sovereignty, right, that we're seeing, which is just a really fascinating idea. And certainly now with Facebook has their own oversight board, right? So they have a litigation system, you know, they, they have, uh, you know, all this money, they can control who speaks and who doesn't speak. Like, that's a very different circumstance in terms of the national security risk. So you have this privately owned actor with global reach, different interests um, that's super rich and very, very powerful. Um, and they're being driven by something different, the bottom line, right? So so that's the first thing I would say. And I, I would say there, there are really three things here. The second thing is, is that um, is this, uh, you know, we talked about this earlier, is this kind of false reality, right? That's promoted, that there are these structures of social media that create this false 
world and augmented reality that blends with our real world. And we haven't talked yet about kind of what's coming down the pike, but if you think about the actual move to augmented reality and virtual reality and the use of uh, biometric readings, so, uh, and facial recognition, um, not facial recognition in a biometric sense, but in a sense of being able to read emotion off of individuals and then tag those emotions and analyze those emotions. There are patents. So I've been doing this research project as part of the tech incubator that we're launching. Um, and uh, the research assistant, I have a terrific RA who's been just wonderful. And we've been really looking at the patents and the patent applications that are coming out. And the idea of being able to read emotion or to record experience and live another's experience, um, the kind of use of uh, all sorts of um, disability uh, focused innovations transferred over to shared experience in the social media world, the idea of attaching social media to the internet of things so that suddenly, you know, your friend can stop by your house and have a bite to eat. You just unlock the door for them. They can turn, you know, put on the fire, kick up, kick their feet up. You know, they can be there when you're not there, maybe eventually be there virtually when you're not there, or you can gather in a room in that way. Like this, it's just like a whole different world that's coming down the pike. And when we think about this, this is, you know, this is a, a second reality. It's, you know, it's, it's right now it's a false reality vis-a-vis -vis the 3D world, but that's going to become blended into one reality. Um, and that's a very different national security threat than we've seen before. Right. And then the last one is there's a lot about social media that makes it vulnerable to bad actors. And here, you know, Brian, Brian Jenkins in 1974, this is kind of famous in the terrorism literature. He said, uh, you know, terrorism is theater, right? Terrorists don't want a lot of people uh, dead. They want a lot of people watching, right? And if you have this world where one person can go viral overnight, overnight, um, sometimes unwittingly, right? Like the poor guy whose mom put something up about him during the Me Too movement, you know, saying, you know, my son doesn't go on dates or something. He's like, mom, I do. I like to go on dates. I like people. I support the Me Too movement. Um, he went viral, poor guy. He like woke up and his feed was blowing up. He had to go offline for a while. Then he had to post like, um, you know, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes wittingly you can suddenly have this influence and this platform. So what happens is you see things like the New Zealand shooting, right? In the, in the mosque in New Zealand, the, the shooter like live streamed it on Facebook, announced it on Reddit, tweeted about it, you know, and everybody could see what was going on. So this one person on an island out in the Pacific, right? You know, who goes in and does this thing suddenly becomes global and everybody knows instant instantaneously like what is happening um that's very different because that allows bad actors to un undermine the government, to manipulate society, to influence electorates in the middle of elections, to uh, undermine the financial markets. So there's been very little attention paid to the financial markets and kind of how this plays out. That's exactly what countries have done in the past, but that just wasn't nearly um, to the same with with the same types of tools that are now there that can be used right in this way and so th that's a very different situation than i think we've had before and it creates a, you know a somewhat unique national security context that we need to think long and hard about what are the best ways to respond especially in light of our constitutional restrictions so it seems that you know go going back to what you said earlier what's different now is the speed and everything and scale. and scale 
and that we're accelerating towards everything except a resolution. We have a bunch of open questions, but nothing that's truly satisfying right now saying, but we can now look to, or we can go, go to this next. Do, do you see anything uh, in the future that may lead to uh, better answers? Or is this something that we just need more people to be focused on and to have these conversations and to really question how we should be looking at reality and how we should be looking at social media in the future? Yeah, so Ian, that's a great question. I mean, both, right? <laughs> um, yes, we have to focus on those. And in fact, we are. So this is at the National Security Center. We're launching this tech incubator. And our first project, we got a generous grant uh, from uh, the, uh, there's a, a school network, basically public interest uh, network uh, of universities that's basically funding this, as well as some alums who have been very, very generous. And so we're getting together a really different group of people. Um, you know, I for years, as you know, I've taught the National Security Law Simulation at Georgetown, and I've just become increasingly concerned at the role of private and non-state actors. And while we've, you know, gotten the simulation to a level where we you know, we've we've got a pretty good idea of how to run it in terms of the National Security Council and the U.S. Um, we, you know, as, as well as the Five I countries, the last one we had, the, the last global one we had in, involved for the Five I countries. Now I'm really turning in my work and at the center, we're certainly turning to look at this role of private actors and, you know, it's venture capitalists in Silicon Valley and influencers and social media companies and um, uh, uh, so social groups who are uh, somehow marginalized in society. Uh, these are the people on the front line now, right? Uh, so it's going to be people who focus on media studies, who think about uh, the ethical issues, right? We're working with the ethics lab as well. Um, we're working with a, a gaming lab, with MIT's gaming lab, to actually game out and look at where social media is and how it's heading forward. And I think it's going to take a lot of difficult cross-disciplinary international uh, and focused discussions and hard work to think about all the risks that are presented. And then as we start going through how to address these risks, both the intended and unintended consequences. And it may be that the traditional approach, which is regulation and, and legislation, uh, is actually not the right way to go. You know, maybe it turns out we want third-party data brokers. Maybe it turns out um, actually education is more important. Like maybe we need to focus more on the transparency of the algorithms that are being used. You know, who knows what the answers are, but it's pretty clear that our traditional tools and ways of thinking about national security, even our institutional arrangements, it's not clear, for instance, is this FTC? Is this FCC? Is this, you know, FEC? Like if we're talking about elections, is this the Federal Election Commission? Like who should be looking at this and thinking about this, you know, we have institutions that are built on uh, with old technologies assumed. And now we're confronting threats that cross these institutions and present new and unique threats to the United States. And so I think it needs a lot of a lot more concerted uh, discussion and study research, uh, and certainly, you know, writing and moving the ball forward. So that's what we're focused on uh, at the center. I think that's a, a perfect place to, to end it off. Thank you so much, Professor, for coming and talking with us today. And uh, good luck in everything that the center is doing. We look forward to, to seeing what comes out of it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real delight. Thanks for inviting me.
Thank you all for joining us on our first episode of Between Two Codes. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us to be notified for our next episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Between Two Codes. You can also follow Professor Donahue's work at the Center on National Security and the Law's website at Georgetown Law. Thank you, and we'll see you again in a few weeks.